Welcome to the Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts are conversations with leading commentators and experts in the field of architectural construction and associated trades. And today we're joined by Rick Moore, founder of In Control, an independent specialist electrical company that deals with assistive technology and home automation. The purpose of this conversation is to take a look at the potential of new technologies and the issue of connectivity. We explore what specialist engineers can provide and what the trends in this field are, but primarily our conversation will look at what the architect needs to know to enable it to happen. So welcome, Rick. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. The first question really is, um, since I mentioned automation and assistive technologies, can you give us a general idea or example of what kind of things you do? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we do sort of run-of-the-mill general electrics, general plumbing and heating, um, but we specialise in assistive technology, which, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of, for example, automatic doors, windows, blinds, sort of things that people would take for granted on a day-to-day basis, being able to open a door, open a window, turn on a light. If they suddenly found that they acquired an injury or had a disability and they were unable to do that, we can use technology to enable them to regain that portion of their independence and be able to do these things for themselves before we kind of move on to develop that idea just explain to us how you got into this about 15 years ago i had two businesses running one offering general plumbing and heating services another offering sort of security cctv and alarms i'm a qualified electronics engineer i'm also a qualified heating engineer and i was working alongside a, a, an electrician and we were collaborating along on projects and we won a few tenders to do disabled conversion projects for people that had acquired injuries and i started to think that there was a better way to do it For example, an automatic door, we'd get asked to put in a few spurs somewhere near the door. And after all the plastering, the painting, everything else had been done, another company had come in, put a door operator over the door, connected all up. You'd have cables between the operator and the few spur. They might put a couple of sort of grey IP boxes on the wall for receivers, battery backups and, and so forth. I was sort of left looking at it thinking, well, A, why isn't a lot of that being put in right at the beginning when we were doing our first fix cabling and pipe work and also complications sometimes arose because there was several contractors involved along with a contract manager if something went wrong it always seemed to be a race as to who can blame the next person for why something isn't working so i thought well if we can take this and we can put everything together in one package a a contracts manager doesn't have the problem of trying to decide whose fault it is if it goes wrong, because if we've done it, it's got to be down to us, which makes it very clear on both sides as to who needs to sort it. And also from the point of view of the client, if this is a home that someone's going to live in, why would they want excess cables and boxes cluttering up the walls? Why not make it as sleek as possible? So what I've done is to sort of put everything together into a package where we can literally come along and have conversations with architects and occupational therapists and the clients themselves and really figure out what's in what's going to work best for them what's going to be aesthetically pleasing in a property that they're spending a lot of money adapting what's your what's your insurance liability like then Um, I carry 10 million public liability plus employer's liability for anyone that I've got working for me and subcontractors. 
Okay, so um, you say on your website that this this world that you've entered is an ever-updating and high-tech market. So again, you've been going now for 12 years, I gather. So do you want to just explain some of the things that were uncommon when you started that are now very commonplace? Internet connections have definitely improved. Um, so 12 years ago, if we were doing a project in a rural area, we'd have to be looking at sort of satellite broadband to be able to get a reliable connection. Whereas now, it's not that common that we can't just use a telephone line to get a, a, a reasonable connection. And when we don't, we've generally got the option of 4G or 3G um, and mobile broadband that we can install instead. I think the biggest thing is voice recognition software. Back when I started, you would have to train a system to learn each individual voice and then if you spoke with any different inflection, even if you had a cold, it wouldn't recognize your voice. And for someone with, say, a brain injury that's trying to relearn the speech, it was next to useless. Whereas now you can plug in an Alexa and it will recognize your voice out the box. Someone else can come into the house, it will recognize them. And it's getting far, far better. There's still room for improvement in how intuitive it is, but you know, I mean, when you compare it to sort of 12 years ago, the difference is massive. What kind of things, uh, you know, in, in the in the near future, but also maybe long term, are you foreseeing? What kind of what kind of developments can we expect? I, th- I think in sort of the short term, I think we're in a, a kind of a phase of refinement, if you like, where things will improve without sort of on the outside seeming any different but the actual way that things are working how intuitive interfaces are and how reliable things are is 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 it seems to be improving an awful lot at the moment sort of motors for example more and more we're finding that you can use an extra low voltage say 24 volt or 48 volt motor where previously would have had to use the mains powered 240 volt motor yeah, no, nothing, nothing seems to be sort of coming onto the market at the moment and no suppliers are sort of jumping up and down saying we've got this in development. It, it's all about improving what's sort of already out there at the moment, um, which I mean in a way is a really good thing because the more reliable things get, the easier they get to use, to install and the more mainstream things get, it all brings down the price point. It makes it a lot more accessible for more people. So in terms of like the assistive technology, which is the side we kind of started talking about at the very beginning, the reason we're talking about it is because there's going to be architects listening to this program and they're the ones who in some senses specify it or at least have to make the drawings and the judgments in order to incorporate it. So when an architect does these typical designs, has the standard wheelchair stair lifts, the alarm poles, the socket heights, the variable movable heights, kitchen units and what have you, these are kind of standard things that have been around for a while. Well, a lot of this is kind of hardly automated, is it really? I mean, so I'm just wondering whether things that are reasonably inexpensive, things that might improve the life of disabled people, but very often aren't considered. What 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 is there out there? Well, I mean, so 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 if you go sort of to document M, where you've got ramps and level thresholds and and so on, it very much becomes a tick box exercise. And one thing that I've learned over the last twelve years that I've been doing this is that if you approach it as a tick box exercise invariably you're going to miss all sorts of things or you're going to incorporate stuff that really doesn't help someone everyone's 
individual and people have different abilities, different needs, different issues. So if you, if you approach it with a, a sort of checklist approach, it's not going to work. I mean, if you look at sort of a, a door entry, it's all very well putting in a ramp and a level threshold so that the wheelchair can physically get up there. But can the person in the wheelchair open the door for themselves? If it's dark, can they turn on the light? And I think that that's the main thing that's being missing is sort of the control of those elements. You know, it's, it's all very well saying, well, a wheelchair can go here, but can the person in the wheelchair necessarily do that without having someone take them. PIR movement sensors is one way of doing it. You could also have lighting control where the person in the chair can turn the lights on on the phone the way that you or I would use a light switch. See, this is where it all leaves me behind uh, since I can, <laughs> I can barely turn my phone on and off. Uh, just as an aside, since we mentioned uh, some of these things in, 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 uh, in passing, just to say to the listeners, we will be looking at uh, changing places, disabled access and changing places, toilet provision in a, in a later program in some depth as they're just coming in in the last uh, couple of months. But uh, as I understand it, uh, Rick, you're keen on designers understanding where things go, uh, yeah. like making those allowances for these things to happen to enable the user then to make their improvements, but also for simple and costly allowances within architectural design. So just give us a general idea about that, how that works. I mean, if you're looking at sort of for people that have disabilities and acquired injuries, there's an awful lot of different things that are available on the market, whether it be heating controls that, you know, someone can't necessarily reach out to a thermostat on a wall, but they can pick up a smartphone or a tablet and use that and that and and there are plenty of ways that you can enable someone to have control of the heating with a smart device someone that's partially sighted or blind can have an induction hob that will talk back to them and will tell them what the temperature is and they can set a timer and it will tell them when that's reached for someone that's deaf they can't hear a doorbell but they can see a visual indicator they can look at a screen with a video intercom and they can recognize oh there's someone at the door i'll let them in there's a myriad of technologies available depending on what the abilities or disabilities of a person might be and ultimately how independent they want to be as well okay and what do you think about this lifetime homes initiative it's been around for quite some time you know but it's it's again it seems to be making potential holes in floors for future use of stairlifts or whatever it might be. It's, again, it seems to be a bit of a tick box exercise. What, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think in principle, it's, it's a really good idea. There's no harm in sort of things like a, a downstairs wet room, for example. To put one in without the services already being there would cost fortune. At the time of constructing a property, the cost of actually putting those services in and capping them off would be negligible. So that makes sense. As far as putting a PowerPoint anywhere that it might be needed in the future, well, you could pepper walls with PowerPoints at various heights and have few spurs that do nothing. And the cost would become an issue for quite a lot of people. I know full well that a well-installed electrical installation will last longer than 25 years but the recommendation is that you rewire your property every 25 years so to have that recommendation of 25 years for an electrical installation yet to wire a house with future provision for when someone reaches retirement age and they might move into it when they're 20 the logic kind of doesn't join up in those circumstances 
so I think there's good things to be taken from it and there's points that people really need to think about before they just start ticking boxes. Has it become simpler to rewire house? Actually, in a lot of ways, the way it's done now has become harder. A lot of years ago, it would all be done in conduit. So you would be able to take a switch off and pull a new cable We're using the old one up a conduit. That's given way now with dry lining and, and so on where cables will just be clipped or capped down a wall and it's very rare you can get a pull on a cable up a wall quite often some people seem to delight in sort of putting drywall adhesive over the cables which stop you doing that so it, it tends to be you're chasing out but at the point you're rewiring a property you tend to find very few rewires you would put everything in the same place that you've just taken it from mostly things move whether that be switches to different heights or sockets because people want more of them or in different places i guess there is a question of how much point is there in making the rewire ultra easy in some cases it'd be fantastic because people just want same again but new in other cases everything's got to move anyway so what was the point in going to the extra length of conduit at the beginning? Okay. Do you then uh, liaise with approved inspectors or with uh, architects themselves and just kind of give, or fire engineers, and give some of this advice to maybe make improvements? Where it tends to come in is with clients that we've been dealing with, for, you know, for a good while, they will approach us at the point that they're starting to do the drawings or at the point that they've got planning permission you know, sort of start talking to us about what should we include in the M&E. There's an awful big process to go through as to what are the goals in terms of the client, what do we need to be aware of in, in terms of the people that are going to be living in the property and their capabilities. Um, but yeah, at that point, we can start looking at sort of escape strategies, security, and pretty much everything else to get the house so it's a a really comfortable and safe place for people to live. So um, we mentioned earlier about energy efficiency, and it's one of those things which isn't really talked about or thought about even uh, when, it, when it comes to an energy saving strategy. We talk about insulation, we talk about the fabric, uh, and maybe making boilers and, and all that more, more energy efficient. But given the fact that there's this government direction uh, that gas boilers are going to be phased out in some ways within within certain residential properties, and there's going to be, what does it say? It says that improving insulation, reducing dependence on burning natural gas in homes and businesses. How will that impact on electrical heating, on electrical energy efficiency? Well, if you take away gas, you've got to replace it with something else. You burn gas... And so long as it's burning efficiently, you get water vapor and you get carbon dioxide. Your problem is when it doesn't burn efficiently, you get carbon monoxide, which is the killer. So whether that be electric or whether that be air source and ground source heat pumps, um, you know, you've got to have some way of heating your property. At the moment, we don't tend to design systems that take away a gas boiler altogether. Even when people want renewables, we would design a gas boiler into the system as either a backup or to assist the renewables because it's very difficult to make the renewables that we've got available at the moment take all the jobs that a gas boiler would do. And in terms of solar panels and what have you, I don't know, or photovoltaics, I don't know whether you deal with those at all, but again, those the efficiencies of those have improved 
significantly in the last 20 years or so. What does a designer need to, I mean, just a couple of quick things, nothing significant, but what does a designer need to think about when thinking of installing these? Okay, well, I mean, the first thing is hot water storage. Over the last, I don't know, 20 to 30 years, the domestic market has moved away from hot water storage and into instantaneous water heaters, combi boilers. Now, for a 30 kilowatt combi boiler to replace that with electric, you're talking you need a 130 amp supply. And with the average domestic supply being 100 amp, that's just not feasible. With air source and ground source, they run at much lower temperatures. So you've got to use a hot water cylinder to store the heat to bring your hot water up. You haven't got the capability to heat it on demand. The other thing is when you're heating your home with air source or ground source exclusively, because they run at lower temperatures, sort of 40 to 50 degrees, whereas a gas boiler is capable of 70, 75 degrees. If you're using radiators, your radiators need to be a lot bigger. Underfloor is the most compatible with air source and ground source because it's designed to run at lower temperatures. So the two work together very, very well. What you've got to bear in mind is where we get a really, really cold spell. Air source will work down to about minus 18, but it starts to get less and less efficient, which again is why when we're designing systems, we'll usually incorporate a gas boiler to take up the slack when the renewables just can't keep up with demand. I mean, we've done, we've done systems that have gas boilers, air source and solid fuel stoves with heat exchangers when people want the effect of a solid fuel stove and you kind of get all those sources combined but i think at, at the moment until the technology develops a little bit more people are going to struggle to get to replace a gas boiler completely that seems to be the way the plans are heading so watch the space is that what you're saying i think so yeah i mean i think it will get there that's definitely the drive to move away from fossil fuels i, I mean hell i'm a, i'm all for a clean air for us all to breathe you know i just don't think the technology is quite there yet to replace the convenience of natural gas uh leave that one hanging for the uh, audience to make their own minds up so do you want to just give us a clue of some issues we should be aware of yeah, make, sure. make an efficient smart house sure with passive house design where it's very well insulated it keeps the heat in the cold out or even in the summer the heat out it's incredibly efficient way of constructing a building but what all that foil does as well as reflect all the heat is it reflects electromagnetic signals so where you have mobile data i mean there's plenty of examples when i'm on a pro working on a project before the insulation goes in i've got a perfect signal on my phone and as soon as the insulation goes in, I've got zero signal on my phone inside the building. What that also does is it cuts down how effective a single router can be in a property at getting a wireless signal around a house. Now, I mean, you kind of take for granted that if you, if you buy a property or you have one built, that there'll be lights, there'll be sockets. But no one seems to think about how anyone's going to connect to the internet. It seems to be left as an afterthought. And I, can, I, I just think that we should, as things have moved on and everything is now relying on internet connectivity, we should be thinking about that when we're designing properties, at least putting a network point in each room and thinking about where the incoming phone line or, or perhaps cable line is going to come into the property, where the main router is going to be. And if nothing else, homeowners can then expand on that 
and they've got a basic infrastructure. All it would take is some Category 6 cable and some network points, relatively inexpensive. To take it to, a, to another level, it'd be to actually add wireless access points into the building design. As much as you'd put a light in a room, put a wireless access point in, and then you make sure that there's the possibility to connect to the internet in every room of the house. And where you haven't got a mobile signal, we've now got voice over IP and Wi-Fi calling. You don't actually need to have a cell phone signal to make and receive calls. You can do it via your internet connection, but only so long as your internet connection's up to the job. And like I say, I think because things have moved on now so much in terms of what we do online, that really, why aren't we incorporating that into the properties that we're designing and building? Yeah, well, obviously, I don't really want to pretend that uh, most architects are as technologically useless as I am, but I'm quite sure that a lot of them are. Uh, I I just wondered, since you've just given us examples about what architects could and maybe should do but don't do do you have any kind of quick examples about cock-ups or you know missed opportunities that you regularly see on jobs i mean for a few examples if you look at lighting lighting technology has moved on an awful lot but i frequently see architect drawings with layouts for down lights that would be fine for halogen gu10 lighting there's not much spread on the light most of the energy is lost to heat so the light output isn't great and you need a lot of them to light a room with modern led lamps in some cases you can cut it in half as to the actual amount of lamps that you need to light a space so you know that's just where drawings need to move along with the times and sort of think well you know the technology that's available now we need to design differently but also presumably you know the old idea of just doing a consumer unit and a little meter in a cupboard by the door I mean, are we talking about big switchgear kind of um, housing now? Or I mean, do we have to have more space for these things? Not necessarily. You know, I mean, things, another part of what we were saying earlier about technology development means predominantly it will also get smaller. I mean, in the biggest projects that we do where we've got massive amounts of technology, we can fit all of the, the head end and the server and all the rest of it into a space that's sort of two meters by a meter it's a a large cupboard effectively so it's not masses of space it's not like you've got to upgrade to three-phase supplies it's just having a bit of thought about what technology is available and how things have moved on again frequently we see tv points where it's one coax cable to a tv point not that many people actually use terrestrial tv now yes you want it there because people do but people also use satellite TV and streaming services. So actually, if you're only going to put one cable to a TV point, you should put a network cable instead of a coax cable. And ideally, a couple of coax cables and a network cable, and you can call that a TV point. To kind of change that might take some doing. So I was just wondering whether you actually managed to get in on projects early enough, I mean, to talk to design teams, to give them all this advice up front, or are you constantly firefighting? It, it, a bit of both on the with the clients that we've worked for before they definitely see the value of getting us in at the design stage quite a lot of projects now where we'll just get thrown a blank drawing and say what would you put in this and we'll go right the way through and design all the lighting the heating all the mechanical electrical infrastructure and then work with the architect and the client to, to finalize what's actually wanted new clients that come to us 
a lot of the time we find they're at the stage where the building's halfway up and they need someone now. And in some cases, they've actually gone further than they should have done to get us in. And we've sort of got to backpedal a little bit on the project to, to start installing cables. You know, they were at cable installing stage a couple of months back. So it, it's a bit of both, really. It definitely works best where we can get in at the beginning and have the right conversations from the get-go. It runs a lot more smoothly that way. I'm assuming that you're brought in as a specialist uh, consultant, supplier. Um, I just wondered what kind of contractual terms you... Because you're then brought in by the main contractor, let's say. What contractual um, terms you have and... Yeah, sometimes we'll be brought in by the main contractor. Uh, we work with a few different builders that will bring us in on, on projects that they get. Other times we are appointed by the client or the client's financial deputy as a specialist contractor to the project. So even before they've chosen a builder, they already know that they're going to use us to do either all the mechanical and electrical or the assistive technology and the specialist works. We don't always do both. Sometimes we'll, we'll just do a part. So it does vary. In terms of health and safety, because obviously I've, I've seen some terrible, terrible accidents on building sites and some of them have involved electric. It's a risky business. Yes, it's not, it's not up there as the major problem on construction sites, but it's, you know, when it happens, it's devastating. So because obviously the architect in some ways as principal designer will, and, and principal contractor will have to take on some of that liability up front by doing risk assessments and everything. So are there any practices that you would be able to identify as, you know, be, be aware of, be careful of and, and all the rest of it? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we always do risk assessments, method statements before we, we start a project looking at all the various elements that we're going to be doing. I mean, the riskier things tend to be if you've got to go onto a roof to install a mast, for example, or, you know, sometimes you have no choice but to work on a live electrical supply in order to diagnose a fault. What I'm getting at is the fact, I understand you do your own risk assessments, that's yeah. fair enough. But if I'm an architect, because this is partly what this program is about, to kind of try to educate the architect. So putting a mast on a roof, I think, is risky business. I'll get it. But are there other general stuff that, you know, happens within the electrical trade that architects are very either blasé or ignorant about that actually could cause problems? It's kind of a difficult question because I, I tend to take the, the sort of opinion that if I'm the one doing the work or I'm the one bringing people in to do the work, then I'm the one that's responsible for making sure that they do it safely rather than someone else being responsible for that. I think it's about taking ownership of it. So I think the best thing the architect could do is make sure that they're working with a reputable company that takes health and safety seriously. If everyone's got the attitude that, we all want to go home safely at the end of the day. 99 times out of 100 or 999 times out of 1,000, everyone will. It won't be an accident that would have been preventable. It will be an accident that is an accident that's going to happen rather than something that, you know, wasn't down to negligence. But in terms of maintenance, given, again, the, the fact that architects will very often have to or should develop the maintenance program or the maintenance manual at the end of the job, are there certain rule of thumbs, standard things that you could kind of point to, clauses that you would recommend an architect builds into an electrical uh, supply? Certainly. Well, I mean, the, the standard recommendation for uh, domestic wiring is to have it inspected every five years. Now, if it's been installed properly and 
no one does a thing with it except use it. In some cases, that might, you know, it might be sort of money for all rope in a way. If it's been installed properly and no one's made any changes to it at all, then absolutely it should be fine in five years. But that is the recommendation. And on the proviso that someone might have thought, oh, that socket's been cracked because I hit it with a chair, I'll change it. Because let's face it, that is in the remit of some people's DIY. Then it, I think it's sensible to sort of go with the industry recommendation of five years for the, the wiring infrastructure. For sort of appliances, certainly any, any automated appliances, sort of door operators or automatic gates, every 12 months to make sure predominantly that the safeties are working properly so that a motor can't crush someone or cause an injury. I mean, again, for gas appliances, they should definitely be serviced and checked every 12 months to make sure that they're operating safely and efficiently. Are there any other things you want to flag up? Again, stuff that maybe designers, architects, those people who are using your services that should be aware of? I think it's about thinking a little bit outside the box in terms of what the client is going to need in life in general. And a lot of that everyone kind of gets because we all need internet access. We all want lights in convenient places, you know, things like that. And think about the technologies available, but ultimately don't be afraid to engage with a contractor that specializes in this sort of thing. Because, you know, as an architect, you've got to have kind of a broad knowledge of everything. And there's so much in the construction industry that it's impossible to be a specialist in everything. So I would not be afraid to sort of engage with contractors. And and the best way you can find out the good contractors from the bad contractors is by talking to them and listening to them what they've got to say. Does it sound sensible? Or are they just trying to sell you everything they possibly can? Are they presenting options? Because that's another one. Some contractors are very set on doing everything one way. Can they give you two or three options? Can they give you the pros and cons of each option? If they can, then they're probably well worth listening to and it's probably well worth taking their advice on board. And and so it's not necessarily driven by price? I think you've got to consider price and you've got to consider value. The cheapest price is not always the best value. Okay, on that commercial bombshell, uh, we'll we'll have to stop there. Thanks very much indeed, Rick. Uh, Very interesting, as always, when we have a chat. That was Rick Moore, founder of In Control. That's www.incontrolautomation, all one word, .co.uk, providing some important hints for architects, designers to think about in terms of risk, in terms of design, and in terms of maintenance early on in the design process. If you want to subscribe to the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive, Please follow the link on the website, on SoundCloud or iTunes. Until the next time, many thanks indeed for listening. Bye-bye.